The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for the chance for us to gather and to study. Uh, Thank you for the greatness of the themes that we're going to look at tonight. Pray that you would give us grace to walk through them in ways that glorify you, that our hearts and minds would be shaped by the truths you have uh, put before us as we study. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's been a number of weeks since we've been together, uh, but we're in the middle of one of the great chapters and the deep chapters of the Bible in Romans chapter 9. And so I would love it if somebody would be willing to read. We actually have two different people read. I'd like to get through verse 29. So maybe if somebody would be willing to read uh, verses um, 1 through 13, and then somebody else 14 through 29, I would appreciate it. Romans 9, 1 through 13, and someone else 14 to 29. What is it again? Uh, Romans chapter 9, are we all there? All right, we're at Romans 9, and then 1 through 13 would be a good place, and then 14 to 29. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons, there's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the, the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Oh, through 13, sorry. I'm having trouble with numbers tonight. Not only that, but Rebecca's children had one... (coughs) And the same father, our father Isaac, yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand. Sorry. Not by works, but by him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. All right, thank you. Somebody else, 14 to 29. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? 
But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what will what is molded say to the molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump, one vessel for honorable use, another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory through vessels of mercy, which he has prepared for prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews, only but as from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who has not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. As and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have, all, we would have been like Sodom and become like the Lord. All right, thank you. All right, so as we come back now into this uh, portion of Scripture, this is uh, a very serious issue that Paul's addressing here. And he's going to address it for three chapters. Um, Romans 9, 10, and 11 addresses this problem. And the problem is, uh, what about the Jews? Putting it simply, why is it the overwhelming majority of Jewish people are rejecting uh, Jesus as their Messiah? And what does that say about God? What does it say about the word of God? What does it say about the gospel? That's the, the issue that Paul's addressing. It was very intensely personal for him because he himself was a Jew. Uh, we're talking about his own relatives. We're talking about his own his extended family, his heritage, and he has to address this. And so Paul's going to walk through this. And the answer is very complex, obviously three chapters. The theology is deep. It's powerful. And it's good for us as, for the most part, non-Jews, uh, followers of Christ, to listen in on Paul's answer uh, because it's relevant to us. And so we're walking through this uh, as we began. Uh, we start with Paul's passion. Uh, his emotions about the topic. Uh, right away, he says, um, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish. So Paul's uh, grief over lostness, uh, he addresses. Um, I was speaking last, last night with um, a woman who has a heart for the arts community, a heart for uh, people in, in the arts. That would be dramatists, that would be painters, musicians, who are overwhelmingly not just not Christian, but aggressively hostile to the gospel, uh, politically uh, liberal, I would say. Um, and uh, this woman has again and again shared her faith and has seen no fruit and is actually, you know, it takes a lot of courage to even open your mouth in that community and, and share. And so she was asking my advice, like, how do we, you know, do, we keep, do I keep going? Do I shake the dust off my feet? What do I do? And, and I'm just constantly reviewing Romans in scripture memory these days. That's the, kind of the project I'm on. And so right away, Romans came up in my mind. And so I gave her Romans 9.1 and Romans 10.1, and then Romans 10.13 through 15. I said, that's the answer, All right? First, you grieve. There's a grief involved. You have a sorrow over lostness. Then 10.1, he says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelite is the Israelites that they may be saved. So you're praying for the salvation. And then in 10.13 through 15, 
it's the missions, it's going out, you preach the gospel, you proclaim, um, and you know, you hope that God will uh, work. So those are, those are some of the responses to lostness, and that's where Paul begins. You know, he, uh, he uses kind of an oath. He says, basically, I, I, I swear to God that I'm telling the truth that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish. A little bit uh, by way of review. Why does he use all this language? I, I, I'm telling you, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. I, you know, what, why does he use all this language to say, I have great sorrow for the lostness of the Jews? Why all these extra words? I promise. John, go ahead, brother. Can I just think about a lot of modern views on this would be that... Uh, we hold this to mean that some people are predestined to hell, that we are callous, not caring. I think Paul's trying to preempt that by saying, I, I am truly sorrowful. Okay. Yeah. All right. So we're going to get into that as we walk through that tonight. Also, these unbelieving Jews, a group of them, how were they interacting with Paul just in terms of his life and ministry? I mean, what do you read in the book of Acts? What, what were these, what was the nature of his relationship with many of the unbelieving Jews, let's say the more zealous of them. He, he preached in the synagogue initially, but then when they rejected him, I shake my, the dust of my feet and I turn to the Gentiles. So they might think that he's happy. You know, mm-hmm. He's up with them. You know, they're getting what they deserve. And there's no sadness on his Okay. Um, so he would move on. Um, w- would the Jews leave him alone? Were they leaving him alone? No. Uh, the most zealous of them were doing what? Chasing him to what end? To kill him. They were aggressively pursuing him from town to town, hunting him down, stirring up Gentile leaders who really didn't care, looked on this as an intramural issue within Judaism, and they didn't really care about some guy named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. That's the way one of them put it. Some guy he said was alive. It's like, it was like, what is this to us? The, the Romans were just concerned with good governance and taxation and all kinds of other things. They didn't really care about this. And yet... There's a group of ardent individuals that are fomenting distress against Paul and like stirring up, you know, riots in Jerusalem and all that kind of thing. And yet Paul says, look, if I could, I would trade my salvation for theirs. I would do that. And and, and it doesn't make any sense. It's like, why would you love people who so clearly hate you? And so that's another reason why he uses all this language. He says, I have great sorrow. And then he talks about their advantages. But those advantages don't save them. You know, theirs is the adoption of sons. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. From them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all forever praise. All these advantages, they have these tremendous advantages, but it doesn't save them. That's why he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish. Uh, there is a small sector of evangelicals that don't think that Jews need to be changed at all. They're part of God's plan and all that. That's a, just a very bad misreading of theology. Paul wouldn't have said that. Paul, that's why Paul went to the synagogue to preach. He felt that they needed to hear and believe and be saved. And yet they're persecuting. And so now he's got to get into the question. All right, this is going on. The Jews are overwhelmingly rejecting Christ still to this day, still going on. Um, how do we understand that? His primary concern that he lists right away, which he talked about, is in verse 6. What is his primary concern? What's the first thing he's worried about that he's zealous over on this matter? Let me read verse 6. <laughs> it is not as though God's world word had failed. 
Okay, it's not as though God's word, God's word had failed. So what is the concern Paul has here in verse six? He's very concerned about this. Trustworthiness of God, right? If the promise of the Jews fail, how can anything I'm telling you about him be true as well? Exactly. So God's word has not failed in this case. God hasn't given a word that didn't work. God didn't say, you know, like Jesus saying to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth, and oh, that today it didn't work. That would be a big problem for Jesus, wouldn't it be? If he had swung and missed on some healings, it'd be like, that'd be, you know, concerning. And, and then all the more, a prophet that makes predictions that don't come true is identified as a false prophet. And so how much more almighty God, and, you know, we, we learn from the Psalms, by the word of the Lord with the heavens established, by the breath of his mouth, God does everything by the power of his word. He said, now that you can take right off the table. That's not what's happened here. God's word has not failed in this matter. So this very famous verse that we quoted in, you know, in, in Isaiah 55, as the snow and the rain come down from the heavens and don't return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Paul says that's still in play. The fact that the Jews are rejecting Christ doesn't mean that God's word has failed. Well, Paul, tell me more. How could it be that God's word has, has not failed? For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So you got Israel and then you got Israel. What does it mean by that? Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. What is he saying? What does that mean? Not all Israel is Israel. Just differentiating between genealogy and being a child of God. Yeah, there is a group of, he would say, we could add an extra word, true Israelites, spiritual Israelites, who are in the center of the nation, the, the genealogy, the, the genetic descendants. There's a group within a group, which he's gonna identify later clearly in chapter 11 as a remnant chosen by grace, a subset of Jews within and it's been that way all along. All you have to do is read Israel's history and you're gonna see there'll be some that will respond favorably to the prophets, but then most didn't. It's just the history again and again. Uh, as I mentioned with Ezekiel, where the angel goes out and says, put a mark on everyone in Jerusalem that grieves and mourns over the idolatry of the city. And then the second angel is told to go kill everyone that doesn't have the mark. That's clearly a display of the group within the group right? You got the mourners who are grieved over the idolatry of the Jews. They are what I think Paul would say, a remnant chosen by grace. They are grieving because they are like God grieved by the wickedness of the people. And they are what Paul would call genuinely Jews. Now, if you would turn back to um, chapter two, as we looked at last time we studied this, it was such an important parallel. He's just developing it a little more here. But if you could read uh, 28, 228, uh, and 29. I'm going to read that. Uh, Romans 2, 28 and 29. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. That, person, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. that person's praise is not from people, but from God. Okay. That is absolutely lining up with what he's saying here in chapter 9. Do you see it? Just because you are physically circumcised and physically a member of the Jews doesn't make you really a Jew. 
You want to be truly a Jew, according to chapter two, there has to be a secret hidden inner work by the spirit called the circumcision of the heart. I think that's exactly the same as Jesus' statement to Nicodemus, you must be born again. It's the same thing. It's a secret working of the spirit. You're born by the flesh or you're born again by the spirit. This is the same thing in Ezekiel 36. I will remove the heart of stone and I'll put in the heart of flesh. It's a secret spiritual work that is done of transformation of the heart. That's what really makes somebody a Jew. So he's just teaching this consistent doctrine. Just because you're born in the family doesn't make you born again, doesn't make you a, a child of God. And so he uses in chapter nine, the language of children of God. Do you see it? He says, nor because there's descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it's to Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned or counted. In other words, it is not the natural children who are what? In verse eight. It is not the natural children who are reckoned as what? God's children. God's children. That's what we're talking about here. This is the very same thing in John chapter one. Jesus came to his own, his own people, and his own did not receive him. But as many as did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. The consistent teaching. Children of God, adopted by the power of the spirit, transformed in the inner nature, heart of stone removed, heart of flesh put in, circumcision of the heart by the spirit, born again, all different terminology of the same thing. A secret working of the spirit within an individual that's supernatural, it's a supernatural birth. It's a miracle birth. And so you've got these two babies. You've got Ishmael and you've got Isaac. And Isaac is presented, especially in the book of Galatians, as a, as a child of the promise, a miracle baby. And why is, he, why is Isaac a miracle baby? What makes him a miracle baby? We just have to know the history of, of Abraham and Sarah's marriage, okay? <laughs> what do we know about Abraham and Sarah? They're old, okay, very old, 190, 100, he's 100, she's 90. What else do we know? Speci yeah, specifically she was barren because he, you know, he had a son by Hagar. So she could not have children, she, and she's identified in the scripture as barren. So she cannot have children. It's biologically impossible until the spirit of God comes on her. Now, not the same way that he came on Mary where there was no human father, but still a miracle. It's, a, it's a, a work of God's sovereign grace. And so basically then Isaac, born by the spirit, born by the power of God is a picture of every Christian, according to Galatians. It's a picture of every believer. We are not just born physically, but we are born supernaturally and spiritually. So what he's saying here is genealogy isn't gonna save you. Being a Jew uh, biologically is not going to save you. But there's a secret inner working, a secondary work of the spirit that's necessary that makes you one of Abraham's, really one of Abraham's children. You wanna be then one of Abraham's children. As he said earlier in chapter four, you're gonna walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. You're going to have a, a spiritual walk. You're going to have a walk of faith. You're going to be a believer. And that's what he's saying. It's, it's just amazing how consistent he is here. But he's saying, look, just because you're a Jew doesn't mean you're going to be saved. That's what he's saying. Not everybody. It is only the children, the supernatural children who are regarded 
as Abraham's offspring. And then he says in verse nine, for this is how the promise was stated, I will return at the appointed time and Sarah will have a son. So this is like a year later, remember when the three uh, men appeared? And I think this is what the author of Hebrews said when he said, some have entertained angels without knowing it. They didn't know they were dealing with supernatural beings. And so Abraham and Sarah made them a meal. This is right before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the promise was made this time, Next year I'll return and Sarah will have a son. And remember how she laughed and then she denied it because she was afraid, that whole thing. Well, that's the promise that was stated. It's a, it's a miracle. It's a work of God's sovereign grace on Sarah's barren womb, on her body. And he in his old age, she in her old age, there's Isaac born, child of the promise. All right. So in other words, Abraham had two sons. Ishmael represents unbelieving Jews. Do you see that? They are biologically descended from Abraham, yes, but they, they're not spiritually descended from him. They're not included in the, in the promise. They're not the supernatural child. They're a child born in the natural process. So that's the argument Paul's making. Just because Abraham's your father doesn't mean you're saved. Look at Ishmael. All right, now he's going to say, look, he doesn't say like he does frequently, one of you will say to me, you know, the pushback. He does that even in this chapter. He does it 10 times in Romans. He doesn't do it here, but it is implied. I know one of you is gonna say, yeah, but come on. It's two different mothers, right? We got, we got Hagar and we got Sarah. And that was a whole problem. I and mean, the whole thing was, shouldn't have never happened, right? And I agree, it shouldn't have never happened. It should never have happened. But that would be a way that a, Jew, a Jewish arguer with Paul would set aside the illustration he just gave. But he said, all right, well, let's go to the next generation then. Since, you, since you're arguing concerning two different mothers, yeah, one father, Abraham, but two different mothers. Now let's look at the next generation. Not only that, but Rebecca's children, which was Jacob and Esau, had one and the same father, our father, Isaac. Same mother, same father, and frankly, without getting too graphic, same moment of marital intimacy, all right? Everything's all at the same time. There are twins in her womb born at the exact same, or, or yeah, conceived at the same moment. And yet, he says, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as he says in Malachi, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. So now it's like, all right, you can't evade the force of this argument now, all right? Being physically descended from Abraham and Isaac isn't gonna save you. Now there's no ardent nationalistic Jew that doesn't know who Esau is and what nation came from him. Anyone know the name of the nation that came from Esau? Edom, the Edomites. Would you say that they were like palsy-walsy with the Jews? How, what would you say is the relationship between the Edomites and the Jews? Were they friends? Were they allies? Did they love each other? No, they absolutely were at war each other constantly. Do you remember when Jacob comes back with, with his, uh, his burgeoning family as he finally escapes Laban and he's going back to the promised land and Esau hears about him and kind of decides to come visit him with what, 400 armed men? What was the implication? Remember the last time they were together, Jacob and Esau? Esau was consoling himself with one thought. What was it? Do you remember what it was? I want to kill this guy. He hated him because he had stolen his birthright and he had stolen the patriarchal blessing from 
you know, from Isaac. Isaac's an interesting case study. I don't know what to make of Isaac. He liked a good bowl of stew, just like his son. It's just interesting uh, how both Abraham seemed to prefer Ishmael to some degree, if only Ishmael would walk before you. And then also we get the same thing with uh, Isaac and his favorite son, Esau, because they shared a love for game, I guess, you know, the hunt. But at any rate, he just, I think his physical blindness represents also some kind of spiritual blindness too. But at the right time, he understood. He gave the patriarchal blessing, so he thought, to Esau, his firstborn. But Sarah, I mean, sorry, um, Rebecca knew because the angel of the Lord had told her, the older will serve the younger. And so her favorite was Jacob, not just because he was a quiet man who used to hang around the tents, but because of that word that had been given. So remember what was happening. The twins were fighting in her womb, struggling with each other not getting along, kind of a representation of what the nations would do later. And she wondered what was going on. And then the angel of the Lord told her, uh, two nations are in your womb, but the older will serve the younger. Now, what is the significance of that statement, the older will serve the younger? It's very important in this argument here. What is the significance of the statement, the older will serve the younger? The older always was the leader in the family the next in line. Yeah, the firstborn. That's the language used, firstborn. Secondborn, you came in second, right, generally. <laughs> All right, so, but this is going to get reversed. And so basically, this is a statement of election, a statement of preference, a statement that runs contrary to what's expected. You remember what happened, how he kind of broke out and they tied a, a red cord to his, you know, you know, so we know that Esau was born first and all that. So at any rate, but he is given the inferior or subordinate position. Now, the key is not so much all that or what you think about it or should have been or any of that. What matters is the apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, saying that represents Jacob's election and Esau's reprobation. That's what he's doing with it in the argument. He's saying it's, it's, it's a significant thing that God said the older will serve the younger. And on what basis? What, what is the basis for the older serving the younger based on Romans 9? What does he say? What's the basis of it? His choice. Whose choice? God's. God's choice and God's choice alone. Now, this is exactly where the doctrine of unconditional election comes from. Before the twins were born or had done anything, good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand. Well, that's, this is interesting. What is God's purpose in election? Well, what does the verse say? Not by works, but by what? By faith. Is that what it says? Not by works, but by faith. Does it say that? No, it doesn't. Not by works, but by grace. Doesn't say that either. Says it in other verses, but not here. What is he contrasting? Not by works, but by what? Him who calls. And it's not even the calling that's pri primarily important here. It just comes down to this. Not by works, but by him. And who's the him in the sentence? The one who calls. Who is the one who calls? Well, you know who's the one who calls. It is God, almighty God. So basically, then you have two different ways of looking at salvation, human works or God. That's what's directly pitted against each other here. It's going to be by works 
or it's going to be by God, the one who calls. And that's God's purpose in election. So if you were to ask, why does God elect at all, period? Why does he elect? This verse tells you so that he would have the preeminence in salvation. That's what we're getting out of it. That God is preeminent in human salvation. That people are saved knowing they were saved by God. And that's Jesus' name. Salvation is from the Lord. That's what it means. And so that we would know that we were saved by God, by his power, his wisdom, his grace, all of those things. That's why he does. So do you see that in the grammar here? You have to read it carefully, but that's it. The reason that the, uh, that the older will serve the younger is so that God's purpose and election would be upheld, would stand. Now, again, this election, his choice of Jacob over Esau happened, it says, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad. What is the significance of that statement? Before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad. So human works don't factor in. And this is very significant. The sequence matters. The before and after matters. Paul makes much of this. For example, earlier, go back for a moment. Look at Romans chapter four. He's teaching there the doctrine of justification by faith alone, right? Justification by faith alone. And he uses Abraham as a prime example. Remember that? What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. That's actually one of the most important themes in this whole argument. God does not want the redeemed boasting in heaven, except in him. He wants us humble in heaven. And so justification by works tends toward human boasting. And so he's saying, if he was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. That's not going to happen. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Just righteousness was given to him, not by works, but by faith, by believing the promise. And so he's the paradigm example of an individual who was justified by faith. He's even called wicked or ungodly here to some degree. But we don't want to say anything bad about Abraham's piety. That's the language. God justifies the ungodly. And so that's what, and then he he uses David's example in Psalm 32 as well. But then he goes on to ask the question about circumcision. Do you see it? Is this blessedness, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against him. That blessedness of forgiveness, is it for the circumcised only or also for the uncircumcised? Well, how is he gonna answer that question? It's about historical sequencing. What was Abraham's condition when he was justified? Was he was circumcised at that, was he circumcised by at that point or later? And he, he was uncircumcised when he was forgiven of his sins. He was uncircumcised when God credited to him as righteousness. He received circumcision later in chapter 17. He was justified in chapter 15, Genesis 15. And he received circumcision later, a sign, Paul says, of the righteousness that he had while he was still uncircumcised. It's an outward and visible sign. Remember, the circumcision is of the heart by the spirit. So the outward sign is a sign, like baptism is for us. The outward, outward sign is a sign of an inward transformation that's happened by the Spirit. So Paul's making an argument based on temporal sequencing. First this, then this. That's how we know. Now, if you go back to Romans 9, he's doing the same thing. The election happened before they did any works at all. 
Why? Because in the same way that circumcision was not a causal factor in justification, so works are not a causal factor in election. He's openly saying that. Our works don't tend toward our election either way, good or bad. They don't factor in. You haven't done anything yet. And that's the key. This is what we call unconditional election. All right? And there's, no, there's nothing in the person. It's not by works, but by God, the one who calls. Yes, brother. Is this, is this election here specific as individuals, as nations, or both? Um, this election that he's talking about here is individual election. Um, he's going to use the word election. It's a good question you're asking. Um, uh, they are called elect as a nation <clears throat> later. Um, you know, as far as the gospel is concerned, you're, they're enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they're loved on account of the patriarchs. In that verse, he's using election differently. That's a national election. But what does election mean? What does the word mean? Select. Select or choose. It is God choosing. The, the key thing is for what? Is he choosing the nation to be saved into heaven through the forgiveness of sins? Or is he choosing the nation out of all the other Gentile nations to be his special people, the focus of his efforts? I think that's what the national election is. Clearly, if it were both, you're saved nationally and individually, then why is Paul weeping and grieving and why is he preaching the gospel in the synagogues? Because he knows that's not gonna save them individually. Here though, we're focused on individual election. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So the secondary Israel, the election to individual salvation is in view here. That's what we're talking, very good question. Uh, what do you mean? Yeah, I mean, yes. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 talks about that. Sure, sure. But the election comes first. Right. And then the calling comes next. Calling happens in time, all right? It happens externally and internally, all right? The external call is the hearing of the gospel message by a human preacher, usually a human. Um, angels can do it too, but boy, they would do a bang-up job. The IMB would be out of, out of business, uh, whatever. Angels would be awesome. I mean, they do have the capability of communicating the gospel facts, but God has entrusted it mostly to humans. But that's the external call, the, the vibration of the ear with the sound of the gospel, God, man, Christ response. That's the external call. That's what Jesus meant when he said, many are called, but few are chosen, the external call. But then there's the internal call by the spirit, and that's 100% effective. When he calls you out of darkness into light, you come, you're, you're alive. That's the sovereign call, like let there be light and there's light. Those go together, those go together. So very, very good. But that's, all right, so not by works, but by him who calls. She was told the older servant of the younger. All right, so fundamentally, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad. Now, um, there are in evangelicalism, two systems, uh, Calvinism and Arminianism. Um, a thoughtful Arminian who wants to do the best that he or she can with Romans 9, and there's not many of them, uh, basically, most of them, like John Wesley, just completely punt on Romans 9. Um, and I'll read the quote later in a, in a moment uh, as we get to the topic of injustice, because that's what always comes up. This is unfair. It's unjust. Why is, you know, whatever. We'll get to that in a moment. It's not like Paul doesn't know that that's, what, that's where we're heading. All right. But um, the, uh, the, the, the Arminian system, those who are thoughtful, are saying that God elects people based on foreseen faith. 
that God looks down through the corridors of time and foresees who will believe and chooses based on their choice of him, him foreknowing them. And we covered this when I, I talked about the doctrine of foreknowledge, all right? Um, the problem with that is that it really cuts the ground out from under the very logic that's being you know, established here. In that case, it's still man-centered, you see? God is centering his decision on what we will do, just ha we haven't done it yet. But that just sucks the life out of Paul's whole argument here. Paul's, Paul's saying he's pitting human against God. And that's the point. The reason he chose before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad was so that he alone would get the ultimate credit for salvation. That's what he's dealing with here. And I talked about sequencing in other examples, like, for example, miracles. Cause and effect, right? Something happens first, and then there's an effect that's like that caused it, right? Cause and effect. Clear example of this is the stilling of the storm, as we talked about a few weeks ago, remember? Jesus stretches out his hand and says, peace be still, and the storm stops. The, the temporal connection between that statement and also the person who it is that's doing that, and then the stilling of the storm is what makes it a miracle. The stilling of a storm is not a miracle. Would you guys agree with, all right? Every storm stills at some point or they're still going on, right? Those are the two options, all right? But the ones that are still going on, I would say, wait a while and you'll see, all right? It'll still, it'll calm down. But to have a man sleeping in the boat who's done all these other miracles and then have him wake up and do that, it's the sequence. Him saying, peace be still, and then the calming of the sea, no, that's a miracle, right? It's a miracle. It's the same thing with uh, John chapter four when uh, the royal official's son was healed. Remember, at a distance. And he goes back and, and he's told, oh, your son's well, remember this? And what does he want to know? He wants to know when, when did it happen? Now, they didn't have wristwatches back then, but when? Why did he ask the when question? When was he healed? Why did he want to know the time of the healing? Huh? He wanted to prove causality. He wanted to prove that Jesus had healed him. And by the way, the time lined up. Right? If he'd been healed like hours before he interacted with Jesus, then it's not a miracle. It's just he, he was healed. So that's the whole thing, cause and effect. Paul's argument here is before, therefore, not the cause. The reason we're elect is not in us. It's not our doing before the twins were born <clears throat> or had done anything good or bad. In order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. All right? And then comes probably the most offensive verse in the whole chapter, all right? Verse 13, just as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Now, Paul's just quoting Malachi. It's like, it's like well, I never liked Paul. Well, Paul's not the problem here, Malachi is. Um, but the issue is we believe in the doctrine of inspiration. So if you have a problem, you have a problem with the Holy Spirit. Why would people stumble over this verse and say it's so difficult? They don't like it, it makes them angry. Because God is love, so how can he hate? And there's a cross-reference to, in the New Testament, where Jesus uh, helped me with the, uh, where, he, where he says you have to hate his, because if you, if you either love me or you hate him. Um, your own life, your, your wife, your mother or father. It's the same word, and it doesn't mean hate. Even, I, I read your transcript on that sermon. Hate there doesn't mean what we're thinking hate. It's an idiom to prefer, right? 
I think in, in time it does, uh, in, in, in this situation, I understand that. Here's, here's the thing. Um, if you look at Psalm 139, just take a minute and look. Look at Psalm 139 for a moment. And, you know, this is it's just an interesting statement. Psalm 139 is one of the beautiful psalms, you know. Uh, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You know, it's a beautiful you know, beautiful psalm. It's got so many beautiful, beautiful aspects. You know, if I go on the far side of the sea, you know, you knit me together in my mother's womb, you know, uh, all of this beautiful statements. All right. Um, uh, you know, he says, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be, verse 16. Verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them, where I'd count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. Now suddenly comes verse 19 and following. If only you would slay the wicked, O oh God. It's like, whoa, where'd that come from? We were having such a nice time in the psalm, you know? Why are we talking about slaying the wicked? All right? Um, Away from you, bloodthirsty men. And then verse 20, they speak of you, meaning God, with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Now look at verse 21. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Now, how would you understand the word hate in that verse? I would think the normal way we use the word hate when connected with a person, right? Like, I hate that person. Do you think that that's what David is saying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? I hate people who hate God. I'm asking, just, just as you read Psalm 139, is that what, what you're getting out of it? I think it's the simplest, clearest reading. And if you have some other reading, I don't, I don't know what it would be. So here's how I understand one, Psalm 139. We're not called on to hate people now. We are called on to hate their actions. We can do that. Everybody knows that. We can hate sinful actions. But we always have hope that someone might be converted. Do you remember the parable of the wheat and the weeds, wheat and the tares? Remember that? And the servants wanted to go root up the wheat. Remember? or weeds, root up the weeds. He said, no, because if you do, what might happen? You might root up the wheat with them. Not just because their roots are intertangled, but because you really can't tell the difference. Would you not have rooted out, rooted out Saul of Tarsus the morning of his conversion? Wouldn't you have gotten rid of him? Do you think the church would have wanted to get rid of him? You know, the ones that he had hauled off and thrown into prison? Did he look like wheat or weed that morning? You can't tell the difference. Same thing with Nebuchadnezzar. I think he's in heaven. He sure didn't look like it before he was changed into an animal and his mind was transformed to to love God. So the thing is, we don't know, and I believe the doctrine of reprobation taught here, we don't know who the reprobate are while they live. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that the redeemed in heaven will hate the damned? I think they will based on Psalm 139. Or Psalm 139, when do you fulfill it? When do you hate those who hate God? Never? We're never gonna hate them. Then why did David say it? I think it's meant for the eternal state. It's meant for where we're heading and all that. It's meant for that. It's, in the meantime, we love, we love our enemies. We pray for those who persecute. We hope that they'll be converted. That's the way I understand it. 
Now I've thought about heaven and hell a lot. I've thought about this, wrote about it in my book. I think that in, in heaven, there is no regret. There's no mourning. There's no yearning. There's no wishing I were trading places. There's none of that. That's for now. And we don't hate anybody now. But I think there's a perfect hatred that goes in heaven where there is nothing. And keep in mind, the damned, every good thing that they ever had or ever experienced or was even part of their character, was part of common grace to them, I believe all of it gone when they're damned. Anything of God is removed. There is nothing good about those people when they're damned. That's what I'm saying. Now, I don't say that this is easy, but I think fundamentally, I tend to see Jacob I love and Esau I hated as the same way that David speaks of, do I not hate those who hate you in Psalm 139. I see it that so way. So again, is that an individual hatred or a national hatred or both? Well, I, I, I'm following individual here. Now, Malachi is dealing with the Edomites and it's a little more complex. I would say one of the most complex questions you can ever study is how the apostles quoted the Old Testament. It's not an easy topic. It's not easy always to follow how Jesus uses the Old Testament or how Paul does. But I think we're following, you know, individual here. So the individual. Now, again, would you say that Esau lived out the life of a person heading to hell? I mean, when you think about Esau, do you see other than the fact that he embraced his brother when he came back and didn't use his 400 armed friends that were with him. I just see just the aroma of death around him, you know? I mean, how, he is an example in the New Testament of a godless person, isn't he? Remember how he traded his birthright for a bowl of soup? You know, he was the pinnacle example of somebody whose God is their stomach. So if you think across the Bible, Esau, the Edomites, but Esau in particular, is a picture of a lost person. And I think that's what, what Paul's getting at here. Anyway, whether you like my explanation or not, this is what the Holy Spirit moved Paul to write here, Jacob I love and Esau I hated. So there's a choosing of the one and a rejection of the other just because of God's sovereign choice. Questions, comments? Before we get on to the rest of the study. What time is it? I can't even tell. Oh my goodness, how are, we, how are we doing? All right, so let's just keep going. Let's go on to verse 14, all right? What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Now here it comes. This is where Paul brings up an argument against his doctrine. Now, one of the ways you can know if you're heading the right direction in doctrine is if, like for me as a teacher of this, if I teach in a certain way that makes people think that I'm saying something that makes God look unjust or unfair, then we're heading the right direction. The doctrine makes it seem that God is unjust, right? Does Arminianism make it seem that God is unjust? No, it doesn't. Does Calvinism? That's an accusation that's consistently made against it. And that's the very thing Paul brings up here. You're gonna say to me, God's unjust. Now, let me stop and say, why? Why do people bring up the issue of justice here? Is God unjust? Look at what we just said, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad. You know, John, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, then I can't do anything. I'm sort of sold down the river and couldn't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know. There's nothing I can do about it. I can't change my destiny, things like that. Suffering consequences, not my fault. And it's not even my fault, I, yeah, okay. Other thoughts on this? Why do people raise the question of justice here? Feels unfair. Okay. Because we really want a works-based. Yeah. Salvation, that's, that's the sin of human pride. 
So I was, looking, I was looking at my own sermon on this. I preached three sermons on these three verses. So I don't know what was going through my mind at that time, but at any rate. Um, but I picked up an illustration that Charles Spurgeon gave from um, King Charles II and uh, <laughs> talking about the doctrine of unconditional election. All right? Unconditional election. And uh, Charles II brought in a bunch of his philosophers and counselors and all that. And he said, I want you to solve a problem. Why is it that if you take a pail of water and you weigh it, and then you add a fish to it and weigh it again, it weighs the exact same amount? Why is that? And so they wrangled and they debated and they discussed and they came up with various theories of why this was so, and uh, et cetera. And then um, one of them, the brightest, had some explanation for why this was so. But then one of them said, wait a minute, I have a question. Is it true? So they were spending all this time wrangling on the effects and the reasons and all that. But the the real question you have to ask is, is it true or not? So if you take a bucket of water and weigh it, and then you add a fish and weigh it again, let's say it's an accurate scale, do you think it will be the case that they'll weigh exactly the same? Why don't you take, why don't you guys try this experiment and see if it happens, all right? So I'm telling you right now, that's ridiculous. That would mean the fish literally has no mass, no weight. There's nothing to it, all right? That's stupid. All right, well, why did Spurgeon use that as an illustration? Well, the whole thing here is, is unconditional election true or not? The secondary question is, how do you feel about it? Or how do you think it makes God look? That's a secondary question. But the first question you have to ask is, is unconditional election true or not? And so you just have to go through this, not just one verse. How many verses teach election? How many verses mention the elect? It's dozens of them. So it's not just one or two times. Let me give you an example, all right? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is he that condemns, Romans 8.33. Uh, Romans 11.5, so too at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. And if it is by grace, then it is no longer by works. That's unconditional grace-filled election. And then Romans 11.7, what then? What Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain, but the elect did. The rest were hardened. That's Romans 11, 7. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with the power, Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. We know you're elect because of how you respond to the gospel. 2 Timothy 2, uh, 19. Nevertheless, God saw a solid foundation, stands firm, seal with this inscription, the Lord knows those who are his. John chapter 6. Uh, when most of Jesus' disciples left him because he said, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood to go to heaven, all right, and they didn't like it. Remember, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And out they go. Jesus said to his apostles, do you want to leave too? And they said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus answered, have I not chosen you, the 12? And by the way, one of you is a devil. So he's very clear. The reason they're staying is because he chose them. He elected them. And he said, by the way, not all of you. And he's going to say that later. I know who, he says, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those whom I have chosen. That's in John 13. Very clear, John 13, 18. And then in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should bear much fruit. I could multiply the verses, not one or two. So we go back to the fish analogy and all that. The question you first have to ask is, is election true or not? And it's pretty clear that it is, all right? So then Spurgeon says this, what then is the use of our discussing it any longer? We had better believe it since it's undeniable biblical truth. You may alter an opinion, but you cannot alter a fact. All right, there it is. 
God does certainly deal with some men better than he does with others. I will not offer an apology for God. He can explain his own dealings. He needs no defense from me. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. But there stands the fact. Before you begin to argue upon the doctrine, just recollect that whatever you may think about it, you cannot alter it. And however much you may object to it, it is actually true that God did love Jacob and did not love Esau. So that's, that's the question. Is it, is it biblical fact? It is. Then the second question that comes up in the text is, is God unjust in doing it? What'd you say, Clay? No. Okay, well, then that solves it. He is not, all right? Well, the reason I'm saying that is because I was reading, um, I remember hearing a pastor preach on this not that long ago. Um, if God the Father does what he does because that person is not behaving in the correct way that God the Father needs us to be. So that's when it becomes unjust. When we are behaving, we say that we follow Jesus, um, then it becomes fair. Okay. All right, so let me, let me give you an example of a man who thought that this doctrine was unjust, all right? And that's John Wesley. This is his sermon on free grace, preached in Bristol in 1740. Quote, this is the blasphemy clearly contained in the horrible decree of predestination. And here I fix my foot. On this I join issue with every asserter of it. You represent God as worse than the devil, more false, more cruel, more unjust. But you say you'll prove it by scripture. Hold. What will you prove by scripture? That God is worse than the devil? It cannot be. Whatever that scripture proves, that by the way is a very interesting moment in his argument. Whatever that scripture proves, it never proved this. Whatever the true meaning be, this cannot be its true meaning. Do you ask, what is its true meaning then? If I say, I know not, you've gained nothing. For there are many scriptures, the true sense of whereof, neither you nor I shall know till death is swallowed up in victory. But this I know, Better it were to say it had no sense, that the verse makes no sense at all than to say it had such a sense as this. It cannot mean whatever it means besides that God, the God of truth, is a liar. Let it mean what it will. It cannot mean that the judge of the world is unjust. So that's John Wesley. For that reason, I boycotted him for about 10 years. I remember I read that in um, Dalimore's biography of Whitfield. And I'm like, all right, I'm not doing any John Wesley for a while. But here's the thing. He was a dear brother, faithful uh, servant of God. Um, probably still holds the human record for miles ridden on horseback. Something like a quarter of a million miles. You know, unbelievable energy and effort for the gospel. And had a, a, just a, a significant impact on the history of England. I think he's wrong about this, but the, the problem here, I think, is what, what I would say pre-commitments or preconceived notions. You, you have certain commitments and they don't fit the text. And so you stick with your preconceived notions, but you don't know what to do with the text. And so what he does is just discards it. He doesn't really even try to interpret it. So the question of God's injustice comes up here because it seems unfair. We think that a salvation by works would be just, right? You earn it, you get it, right? You work, you get your wage. That, that makes sense to us. But God chooses and you're saved and God doesn't choose and you're not seems unjust. And that's why Paul brings the question up, is God unjust? Now, what is his answer in the text? Bite your tongue. Bite your tongue would be one loose translation of that, but like, may it never be? Absolutely not. He does this a lot. May it never be, or certainly not, or absolutely not. 
Not at all. That's my translation. All right? Absolutely not. All right. For, very important word, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, this is a very interesting moment of history for a, a pastor I respect, uh, John Piper. He was sent on a sabbatical by his church at that time, Bethlehem Baptist, and he went uh, back to Germany where he had gotten, you know, um, theological training, and he was going and he was working on a project. And he had one project. He said, I just want to understand one word in the Bible. And it is the word for in Romans 9.15. I want to understand how Romans 9.15 answers the charge of Romans 9.14. Is God unjust? Not at all. For, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It seems like a restatement of the very problem we're trying to address. God's saying, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. But that's not true. Now, in the sermon I preached, and we don't, we're out of time, but God willing, we'll go to it next time. I talk about six things that answer the issue of injustice. There are six reasons why we know that God is not unjust. The nature of God, the nature of justice, the nature of mercy, the nature of sovereignty, the nature of self-revealed glory, and the nature of humanity. These are six arguments come right from the verses we're about to, we're about to go into. Let me give you, with the three minutes that are left, what I'm gonna say about each of them. First of all, the nature of God. It is impossible for God to be unjust. It just is absolutely impossible just as it is impossible for God to do evil. He cannot be unjust. So whatever God does, it is he cannot be unjust. And part of that is God's commitment to justice is so infinitely greater than yours that you don't have the right to even question it. We'll get to that, you know, in the sixth one. But the nature of God, God cannot do anything but justice. Secondly, the nature of justice. What is justice? Justice is that which lines up with God's nature. What is right? What is righteous? And God is the standard of righteousness. And he knows that it's in proportion to the significance of the person and of the reality. God is the central, the central reality of the universe. So whatever lines up with him and his glory and his person, that is what justice is. And so it's a definition. We have to understand justice. You need a standard, right? What is a meter? You need a standard. God is the standard for justice. So that's the second. Third, what is mercy? Well, he goes from justice to mercy. Notice that? It's like, wait, I thought we were talking about justice. Is God unjust? No, because he says, I'll have mercy. It's like, well, where did the word justice go? Because this is not a matter of justice here. You want justice on judgment day? You want to stand up before God and say, just give me what I truly deserve. Think about that. This is not a matter of justice. If God gives you what you truly deserve apart from the work of Christ, and that's the miracle of the, of the cross. The miracle of the cross is that justice went from being your most dreadful enemy to your greatest friend by the transfer of guilt and the substitutionary atonement. Suddenly, it would be unjust for God not to forgive you. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and what? Just to forgive. So your justice becomes your ally because of the substitutionary atonement. But apart from Christ, you stand before God with your record, your life, who you really were, do you want to demand justice from God there? You'll, you'll get sent to hell. So it has to do with the nature of mercy. We don't use the verb demand linked with the word mercy. 
Think of a king back in the day. You don't demand mercy. I demand you give me mercy. That is just something you cannot do. Uh, there's a different verb we usually use. What's the verb we usually use? Beg. beg, all right? You're on the ground pleading and begging. Why? Because you know that you don't deserve it. So this is not a matter of justice here. This is a matter of going, God showing mercy to miserable people, sinners. It's, a, it's an issue of mercy. Then there's sovereignty. I will do what I will do. Is that God? It is God. He's not asking permission. He's not asking input. He's not asking for counsel. He's just being God and he's going to do God things. That's who he is. And that's the language here. I will do what I will do. I will be what I will be. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. That's the language here. That's sovereignty. And we need to get used to it, don't we? Because we're going to spend eternity looking at this great king. And we're going to stop rebelling against him. So we have to submit to his sovereignty. Then there's the nature of self-revealed glory. What is this? It has to do with Moses. What does he ask God to do? Show me your glory. Let me put it to the, this way. Show me your true self or even give me your true self. Imagine this at the human level. Imagine a suitor saying this to a, a woman. Show me your true self. I want. It's like, I'll give it or I won't. You can't demand self-revelation from somebody. You can't demand and say, you owe it to me to open yourself up and show me your true nature. Neither can the woman demand it of the man. It's something you give or you don't. And so Moses is saying, I want to know who you really are. And by the way, that's what heaven is. That's God opening himself up for all eternity to us. And he does that by mercy and grace, not by justice or by what we deserve. It's because he's chosen to show himself to us. And then the last has to do with humanity. Who are we? Who are you, O oh man? Who are we? We're creatures and we're sinners. Do you think we're in any position to question God's justice on this matter? Think about that. As creatures and as sinners. Do you think any holy angel would question something God did? Who's never sinned? Never. How much less should we who are sinners and our minds are corrupted and our judgments are corrupted? So those are the six answers that we're going to get to just a foretaste. Does that make sense? Any questions? Is it satisfying? You guys are good. We're out of time. Praise God. Romans 11, 13, read two weeks ago. For God has been over over to disobedience that he may have mercy on them all. So when he asks that question, he'll have mercy on whom he has mercy. He's also told us who he wants to have mercy on. Everyone, he, all, that he, all that he wants to have mercy on. Because we're not universalists. You're not, I know you. You're not sitting there arguing for universalism. So there's additional words. God has bound all humans over to uh, disobedience so that he might have mercy on the elect. Or, frankly, he's bound all the elect over to disobedience. Same group of people so that he might have mercy on them all. Everyone that he has mercy on was first what? Disobedient. I think that's the language. But we're not there yet, so I'll have a little more time to think about it. So... Anyway, why don't we close in prayer? Father, thank you for the time we've had to walk through the depths of these uh, arguments and uh, doctrine. It is deep. But Lord, I know that as we ponder your, your infinite commitment to justice, as we ponder your remarkable willingness to show us mercy, as we ponder your, your sovereignty as a king to do what you will, uh, as we ponder our own lowly status as creatures and even low, lower as sinners, Lord, help us to understand uh, these doctrines and to be thankful for our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes 
and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.